Awesome. Yeah, that's good. It's good. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. We have Amrita Veer, a co-founder of Findicate and the head of strategy and business expansion at Wagely. How are you doing today? I'm great, Michael. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It is my complete pleasure. It's so rare for me to have somebody on the show that also has their own podcast. So if you feel like taking over at any point in time, feel free <laughs> to start asking. Yeah, I'm going to start asking you questions, Michael. <laughs> no problem. I have answers sometimes, sometimes. Anyway, before we get into the main part of this conversation, can we get some of your background for some context as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see. Um, I'm American, born and raised in the U.S., grew up in Texas, actually. Started my career in consulting, management consulting. Very quickly, though, realized that I wanted to be in the tech world, um, specifically focused on financial inclusion. So went back to grad school, did an MBA in master's of public policy to kind of focus on all sides of financial inclusion. And then I actually moved to Singapore in 2019, just in time for the pandemic. Uh, to join Grab. And now, as you said, um, I'm at Wagely and uh, co-founder of Indicate. What was it like doing the Masters of Public Policy? You went to Harvard, yeah? Yeah. What was yeah. it like? What's it like going there? And you said you're from Texas. So Texas and Boston may as well be like Venus and Mars. They're like two, com but tell me I'm wrong, right? They've got to be two completely different places. Had oh, you totally. traveled enough around to be like ready for the kind of liberalism of Boston and from Harvard? Absolutely not. I think um, I, I grew up in Houston, which is like a very liberal city, but still in Texas. Yeah. And Boston is a very liberal city in the middle of a bunch of other liberal, liberal cities. Liberal states. Yeah, exactly. And so I think growing up, I, I grew up with a pretty liberal mindset. My parents were immigrants to the U.S. and my dad was a small business owner. And so had a lot of those um, immigrant, more liberal uh, mind, political views. And then I think moved up to Boston and felt, I guess I should also say in Texas, often felt like I had to cover those views. Um, I also started my career in oil and gas. Right. Went to some like very conservative schools, worked in very some conservative environments and always wanted to um, kind of just, you know, keep the peace. There's something that's like you never talk about politics at the dinner table. You never talk about politics at work. And that was a rule. And then suddenly I went to this public policy program and in Boston, where you had to talk about very personal, politically held beliefs. And it was definitely a lot of culture shock. But I think opened my opened my eyes that there is like a totally other way of living and thinking and, and communicating in the world and um, really enjoyed the experience. What's the output of the public policy program there? I, I don't know that many people that have been through it, but I'm just curious, like if you'd said you got an MBA, I would kind of understand it. But what is the the master's in public policy like? It was basically there's like a core curriculum, same as like my MBA, there was kind of a core curriculum. But instead of it being very focused on like business fundamentals, um, there were a lot of pieces that were around how do you write a policy memo? How do regulators engage? Um, how do you communicate? And I think there's so many different pieces of public policy that um, and that go into being successful in the public policy space. It doesn't necessarily have to be that you go into public service. It could also be working at an NGO. It could be um, working in development. It could be working in a private organization in a policy role. So I think there are many aspects to it. So you have to almost, um, you have to have more disciplines um, that are covered in the curriculum. Whereas I think at, in business school at HBS, it was very much like, let's do marketing, let's do finance, let's do accounting. Um, and it's a little bit more straightforward. I just think it was, the way I describe it, like the difference is that going to the Kennedy School is like a warm hug. Uh, I was surrounded by really people who are like motivated and excited about a particular area of impact right and going to business school 
Um, it's a little bit colder, but also people who are like really motivated to change the world, but in a slightly different way. <laughs> I was going to say surrounded by money or surrounded by a hug. I don't know. It's a two, it feels like two completely different experiences, but it's, fair enough. It's good balance. It's yin and yang. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, you need both in the world, right? If, if there's no money, there's no public policy to yeah. be fair, right? To be fair. Absolutely. What brought you to Asia? Yeah. So and, and, can, and can I ask you this? I'm always so interested about like, and your, your parents are first generation Americans, yeah? Yeah. So, you know, look, I know because my, my parents are second generation Americans, right? And I know what my family had to do to get from Russia and Ukraine to the United yeah. States. Like my grandfather had to get on a boat as a seven-year-old yeah. alone and end up in Boston. I know yeah. what the struggle's like, right? And then... You know, my family stayed in the U.S., but, like, you were first generation, and then you just get up and leave. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? What was that like? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, we also have, like, some family history stories um, that are just, like, totally wild. More on um, on my dad's side, there's stories around partition in India after independence. Yeah. Those are some, like, nutty stories, but maybe that's for a different podcast. Can't wait. Um, my, my mom actually was born in Malaysia and moved to the U.S. when she was, like, 10. Like, okay. Up in New York. And... Uh, is very much like a New Yorker. <laughs> and so moving to Texas was also a culture shock for her. For her. Yeah. And then my dad lived in India, but actually lived in West Africa for many years. His parents had actually been based in Singapore and Jakarta as part of the Indian Naval Attaché Corps like many years earlier, like 60 years ago. My grandparents, okay, this is a longer story than I intended it to be. But my grandparents met each other. They became friends with each other in Singapore like 60 years ago. I love it. And so my parents grew up being like family friends, but they all had experience like in this part of the world. And my dad, after India, he lived in West Africa, um, lived in the UK, and then moved to the US actually when I was born. Um, so my parents were in West Africa for a few years. And so I've actually had a lot of this like international family history, people like hopping around, moving all over the world. You know, obviously my parents had to do, had to give up a lot. And I think my dad, especially being a small businessman in the U.S., um, has seen a lot of his fair share of challenges. Yeah. But I think when I said, okay, hey, I want to, I want to move to Asia, which I think is your first question. Right. Uh, they were like, yeah, go. Um, you know, we, we wanted to set you up for success. And if you think that success looks like moving across the world, um, you know, that's fine. That's fine with us. Um, they, they weren't surprised at all when I said I was moving. I love it. And to answer your first question, Michael, um, how did I even get here? I've been in the financial inclusion space actually since college. I started a microfinance nonprofit after being very inspired by the work going on in Bangladesh with Muhammad Yunus. Um, he actually came to speak in Dallas where I was going to college and was like super inspired. I was studying finance and was like, oh, there's a way to use finance to not, um, you know, be on Wall Street, but like actually improve people's lives right. um, in a really meaningful way. So I'd always been interested in emerging market microfinance. Um, so I've done some work uh, in that field in like um, Western or sorry, Eastern Europe, in West Africa, and actually worked at a few different early stage startups that were focused on emerging markets. Uh, one of them was actually in the middle of their, when I joined, um, was in the middle of their expansion from Latin America and Africa to South, Southeast Asia. And so that's, and I was, you know, working a lot on that expansion and just became fascinated by the markets here. It's yeah. it's a huge population, uh, growing middle class, growing digital uh, literacy rates, growing financial literacy rates. And I said, um, this is where I want to be, I think particularly after after I finished grad school. And so that's what I did. 
that's how I got over here. Did you specifically come for the job at Grab? And I'm super curious about what it was like to work there as well, right? It's a massive company. And look, we've done a ton of work on the insurance side with the Grab Insure people, right? Talking about micro, micro insurance policies and stuff like that. But you were at GFG, right? Which was, I think, Grab Financial Group. Yes. How does microfinance look from Grab's perspective? If you can comment on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, the lent- I, I did move over for the job at Grab. And the role was, given all of my interest in microfinance, um, it was a perfect role because it was to lead the driver lending business. Oh, wow. And yeah, so if you think about your Grab drivers, they're typically, they're gig workers. They're um, living, they don't have necessarily steady income. They typically don't have access to financial services or responsible financial services. And I mean, it looks a little bit different in a market like Singapore. Uh, but if you think about Indonesia or, or Thailand or Vietnam, the drivers, your two-wheel, your four-wheel drivers, they're they're very much left out of the formal financial system, especially because in those markets, the formal financial sector think big banks, they really touch the top of the pyramid, people who have a lot more income and are what I call more bankable because you can cross-sell them other more profitable financial services. Can I ask you this though, If you, because I'm sure you've done a lot of work on this as well. Does the infrastructure, the way the infrastructure is set up at a big bank, make it so that it's not profitable for them to deal with people that don't have a ton of money, if you know what I mean? Is, is it just the cross-selling part of it as well, where they can sell the mutual fund products and insurance products and stuff like that? Or is it just the fact that the infrastructure inside the bank, the way they've hired people and the way they pay them, that it's just not profitable to deal with someone who can deposit $2 a month or $3 a month? I think it depends like how you're actually able to reach those people. So, and actually able to understand those people. Go ahead. I think they're there's a level of, I think, intellectual laziness when it comes to offering credit services, which is where a lot of banks make their money, right? Uh, the lending products. And you can, if someone is has a lot of assets, someone has high steady income, someone has a lot of paperwork that shows like, this is, this is who I am, um, you can bank that person more easily. You can understand where they're coming from more easily. Um, and I think that infrastructure is what banks have today. But the population that I worked with at Grab um, and a lot in my microfinance work are people that don't have those assets, that don't have that steady income. They don't have a lot of proper documentation showing who they are. Right. And therefore, it becomes difficult, yes, from an infrastructure perspective to serve them, not because they're not profitable. It's because we haven't figured out a way to understand those customers and create a product that meets them where they are. I think one of the beautiful things, I'm sure you've talked about embedded finance on this show. Yeah. One of the beautiful things about embedded finance is that it meets people where they are. It doesn't require them to necessarily go to a bank branch or download a banking app. For us, our Grab financial services for drivers were embedded into the driver app. So they just have like a one-stop shop where they could go for everything. And I think that building that infrastructure is definitely more challenging for banks. Yeah. So one of the things that I've talked to, and I don't want to focus on Grab per se, but just because you were there, yeah. it's because it's relevant, right? It's because it's one of the biggest companies in Southeast Asia. And particularly because the driver population is emblematic, I think, of the whole gig worker force at scale, right? And I think about this a lot. Remember, I come out of a Morgan Stanley and a Goldman Sachs background, right? So I've been in the equity markets. I've been in the fixed income markets. I know this stuff. And I've always wondered, and I've actually suggested this, if it's embedded finance, right, and you could take a dollar, literally a dollar, from two million drivers or a million drivers every month, at the end of the year, you have 12 million bucks. It doesn't feel like a lot of money, but in five years, you have 60. And now you're starting to run, an, and, and why not just give them access to or exposure to the 
S&P 500 or buy some Bitcoin for them or all this kind of stuff. Has anybody done this yet? And if not, why has no one done this yet? <laughs> I mean, I think Grabs is working on it for a while, um, especially with like the neobanks. No, no one's really done it in a meaningful way. And I think it's if you look at the revenue opportunity that exists when it comes to these like lower income yep. workers uh, compared to some higher income workers, people are always going to skew in the higher income direction because just like the total number, the total revenue potential just looks a lot higher. I get it. it there's an AUM game going on, right? All the neobanks and all the sort of robo advisors or old robo advisors are running this big, you know, assets under management game. They're just trying to get to a billion dollars or $5 billion because that's how they get paid, right? They get paid through assets under right. management. But if you're really trying to make a difference, you can start like even when we were at Goldman Sachs, we used to have $5 million hedge funds trade with us. The whole point mm -hmm. was at some point, they're going to be a $50 million, $500 million, $5 billion fund, and they would never leave. And I feel like if you could literally take like 10 drivers in every country and have them get them able to like buy an apartment or buy a condo or buy a house in a way that was impossible to them before because they started investing. And most of these drivers are not 70 years old. They're 20 years old, right? So if you can take yeah. 10 years out of their life and give them even $20,000, it's immensely life-changing, no? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Yeah, sorry, I go ahead. Grab has, no, no, I was gonna say, Grab has tried this, I think, a bit with going into the other verticals, right? When we think of fi like financial services, it also kind of boils down to like how do people live financially healthy lives? Yeah. And that's, yes, there's like a borrowing element, there's like, can, how do you manage your cash flows? There's like, how do you, do you have insurance, which you mentioned? And then how do you save for the future? How do you save for retirement or for like big expenditures down the line? Those are all different pieces of someone's financial life. And I think people have, for the base, base of the pyramid, people have served them pieces of this. No one has put it together in like one consolidated offering. I think Grab has like started to build out those verticals. Um, right? Like Grab has lending, has insurance, has, has investment. And I think it's starting to move in that direction, but no one has yet said, here's the bank for gig workers. And at Wagely, my current job, one of the things we're building is like the bank for blue collar workers. And it's one of the reasons like, I love, I love working there, but all of the, the initiatives like this are still in, like the very early stages. Uh, and I think it's going to take, um, honestly, a lot of, a lot of bigger banks um, and a lot of bigger institutions to say, Hey, we actually want to serve this population because we see them as not necessarily being profitable today but yes in 10 years and 20 years that potential is there and i think that's missing in our like you know high instant gratification financial <laughs> environment <laughs> especially especially in a recession and we can argue about being in a recession in a second can you back up for me though a little bit i didn't ask you this and i should have and i don't ask this a lot really but what does financial inclusion mean to you i mean i can feel it in your voice it's really important and everything you do no i'm serious you don't go get a master's in public policy if you're not really concerned about doing good and doing well at the same time. You just don't do it, right? So it, it, it kind of inculcated into everything you're doing. But when you sit down and think about financial inclusion, what do I really want it to mean? What, is it, what does it mean to you? So financial inclusion is a, it's a little bit of a tricky term. Yeah. Because it's been used in the development context for many years of, to, get, to, to mean getting people access to financial services. And I think that was a, an important metric for a long time as people were especially digitizing, um, we're, we're actually understanding that the base of the pyramid is a, is a target demographic that we can serve. 
um, maybe not holistically yet, but at least in some capacity, excuse me. Um, and so I think that definition was all about access for a long time. But now what we're seeing is that definition has been corrupted and turned into something, it's been turned into really good marketing. And you see I, there, there are a lot of like peer-to-peer -peer lenders, predatory lenders that say, hey, we're, we're here to improve financial inclusion. And that's all over their marketing. That's all over their investor pitches. But really, they're charging predatory interest rates yeah. that when you look at the other, again, those other verticals of someone's financial life, they're actually negatively impacting those other other verticals. If you've got a if you've got a predatory loan, you're probably not saving very much. You're probably not planning for your retirement. Probably. You probably can't afford insurance. Yeah. And so I think the, the story around financial inclusion, I say it, I, I use the phrase because everybody at least is familiar with it. Right. But we're actually, we should be moving into a world that's more around financial wellness or financial health. Um, I actually wrote my master's thesis about this at Harvard. Um, about how you quantify. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, how do you quantify financial health? Um, how do you put it into these different buckets? And now the story is like, not just can you tackle the access part of it? Because a lot of people have access to financial services. Most people have access to a wallet, barring markets where, you know, like Bangladesh, right, do actually work, where only like 50% of people have access to a smartphone. But in most markets, most emerging markets at this point, access to a wallet is available. Access to a bank account is available. Is it, is it, the access to a predatory loan is certainly available to anyone. Why is this but legal? I don't understand. <laughs> That it's even a thing. It's not a question for you. It's a it's a rhetorical yeah, yeah. question. So don't feel like you have to answer it. But it's like even the fact that you can call it predatory, right? 18% per month. You're never digging yourself out of that hole. Let's just say that. That's just my opinion. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, you have access to this stuff. But I like this terminology. And maybe I'm going to start using this from now on. Financial wellness is more important to me. It, it, it really is than financial inclusion. The thing is, with inclusion, right? If I say just the word financial inclusion out loud, everyone knows what room I'm in. Yeah. At least they think they do, right? So that's why people use that term. You're right. Now it's more of a marketing tool and more of a kind of a BS tool, to be fair. Yeah. What I really want to do is I really want to see people working on this thing that, again, that, I've been, that I talked about earlier is how to tell somebody that, you know, the, the power of compounding works even if you just have a dollar. Mm -hmm. It just does, right? Because if you do it when you're 20, when you wake up when you're 50, and you just did little bits and pieces, you could literally have $100,000, $300,000 in the bank and your kids' lives will never be the same. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, not all. But I actually want to throw the question back at you. Go ahead. It sounds like you're saying people need to be educated that this is the power of compounding. This is the power of investing, which is definitely true. But if you're, let's say you're a woman warung owner in Indonesia and you have no ID and your assets are all owned by your husband, how are you even supposed to open like an interactive broker's account? How are you supposed to do that? It's such and a, it, so it's such a great question. So you're, you're tackling two issues there. One is why does your husband own all of your assets? This is a big problem. And I don't want to go into another room that pick a term. I don't even know what to call it, right? Female empowerment. I hate all these terms, right? It's like the world should just be fair. No, but, but I take this stuff really seriously, right? Because I don't want people to live in poverty because they don't have to. So how do you handle that? I, I don't know, I mean, I could say to you, you went to the public policy school, you figured it out. But, but I do think there's a way to use technology, use the mobile phone and use mobile wallets to be able to say to people, you run a warung in Indonesia, you have income. 
I am going to take some of that income, right, as a benevolent dictator. Well, that's what Singapore is. It's a benevolent dictatorship. Singapore does. That's what the Singapore CPF is. Exactly. It's a benevolent dictatorship, and it works. And we can argue about whether it works just because there are 6 million people there or if there are 600 million people there. But the bottom line is that if you literally take a a dime or a dollar from everybody every month, and instead of them, and they may suffer for the first few years, right? Because that dollar is important. I'm not minimizing the value of that dollar. But 20 years and 30 years later, they don't even know. And someone just drops a hundred grand on them. That their whole life is different. And it'll teach their kids how to save as well. I don't think it's that hard to do. And you're right. Access to the products isn't the problem, right? It's access to the right products and actually just forcing people to have a better life. And I don't think anybody's going to complain about that type of um, benign dictatorship. What do you think? I don't know, because, and this is, this is going back to earlier point around why do predatory loans exist? It's because people, especially at the base of the pyramid, yes, you can make this whole argument around like, okay, you can invest this dollar, it'll compound interest and, in 20 years, you'll be able to afford all these amazing things. But if you are living paycheck to paycheck, if you are living below the poverty line, and you just need to think about how you put food on the table, how do you like make it to next week, how you make it to next month, that's not really an option. That's why predatory loans exist. It's because it's a short-term option. Yeah, you pay for it in a really painful way, but it's better than you know not having anything at all. It's better than not being able to like survive. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, and this is why I think, Michael, it's such a challenging problem. And it, by the way, is intertwined with all with like women's empowerment problems, right? Like women are way more in poverty than men are, uh, right? Oh, women it's not even, it's not even, it's not even close. I mean, the whole point of, and look, I'm, I'm probably twice your age, right? But the whole, the whole reason why the divorce law is changing in the United States was because divorce actually just dropped women immediately into abject poverty. Yeah. Right. And so think about what that's like in a developing country. Right, there's a yeah. reason why, and, and again, I'm not making a value judgment or a moral judgment about it, but, right, but there's a reason why all the assets are owned by one person in a particular relationship, it, not just in this region, but pretty much all over the world, right? It's to disempower oh, people. Connected. Say it again? Yeah, it, it's connected. I think, I think there's a huge connection between financial inclusion, financial health, and, and gender. I think, I mean, it drives a lot of the work I do. <laughs> So um, I definitely have to say that. But um, I do think it's all connected. I, I do too. And I've thought this my whole life. Do you want to talk a little bit about Affindicate as well? Because I think this kind of dovetails nicely into what that's trying to accomplish, right? And there are other like Epic Angels is doing a similar thing. I think I've spoken to the founders of this company too. There's a really strong movement and we don't have to go through all the statistics, right? But it's closer to zero than it is to one for the amount of money that like that women actually control in the venture capital world. You can say 2.3%, you can say whatever you want, but it's really zero at scale. Yeah, it's, 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 really, it's really sad. It's really sad. Yeah, so I think the work with Findicate is, is really born out of like some personal impact or uh, angel investing. Like I started angel investing a few years ago as like independently, also like joined some syndicates and found that there was the same problem that I think a few others have identified, which is that like women startups, women-led startups only get, what, less than 2%, 3% of VC funding, but in fact, deliver higher returns. So to me, one, from a financial inclusion perspective, this is hugely problematic. The work I do in my day job at Wagely, getting 
people access to and access to responsible financial services. Um, I'm just seeing it in like for like a different demographic, uh, right. right? For women, women startups, it's it's the same thing. They're not getting access to the capital they need to be successful. And yet we see that women-led startups deliver <laughs> higher returns than male-led startups. Can I ask you why you think that's true? I think, well, why I think it's true, the data says so. And yeah, no, no, that, I, know, I know it's true. The data definitely supports yeah, yeah. it. But I'll, let me give you my perspective. And it's not the only reason why, so don't take this the wrong way. But yeah. here's what I think. I think a few things philosophically. One, too many startups get funded because most people don't know how to invest in them. So this is why 95% of them fail because 95% of them probably never should have actually raised money in the first place. Inside that 95% cohort is mostly guys. Yeah. And they're all going to fail, right? And for a woman to actually raise money, it has to be like, you know, it's so hard to do anyway mm-hmm. that their likelihood of success is so much higher. Yeah. Do you see what I'm I saying? Think, yeah, there are a few reasons. There are a few reasons. I think one is one is the implicit bias that I think you're mentioning. They're just not enough in the room writing checks. Yeah. Uh, and sure. I think that's what a lot of the, there are a lot of funds that are focused or like women founded funds that are trying to solve this problem of getting more women investors in the room to actually write those checks. Because we also know that like people tend to invest in people that look like them. Yeah. And so if I'm a woman investor, it might actually mean I'm more likely to invest in a woman. And so I think that's one part of the problem. I also think that it's true. The stat is true that like the women who do end up fundraising, like the women uh, founders that do end up fundraising, they're founders that have to be exceptional. Yeah. They just like they insanely get, exceptional. They have to be exceptional. And that means that like they're going to run their business in an exceptional way that's going to deliver to deliver higher returns. Exactly. I think it's also it's also true though that like women tend to um be realistic uh in their in their uh assessments of of like revenue potential. Uh right. And so if you've got like the same business idea. And there's a woman uh, founder and a male founder. It is more likely that like the male founder will say we're going to deliver like 10x revenue than the male, the female founder. And that number, whether it's rooted in reality or not, is going to be much sexier to investors, male or female. Is it though? I... Yeah. Yeah, Everybody I mean, we wants can, to turn, Michael. Come on. No, we can spend hours talking about why the <laughs> why the v, why that type of VC market is broken. But that that's a that's a discussion for a different time. You're right. They look at it, and if, if a female founder says, "I think we're going to make a hundred million dollars of revenue every year," they're like, mm, "Maybe not enough." But the guy's going to say, "We'll make ten billion a year," and everyone's like, "Yeah, here's my money." None of it's possible, and everybody knows when they're making that investment that it's not true. And the female founder or the or the minority founder is off to the side somewhere, going just slowly grinding it out grinding it out and maybe getting to 50 to hundred million bucks in five years. And the other guys just like lost all the money, right? The other guys yeah. like Adam Newman. I mean, I just don't understand. <laughs> I'm not even going to get into that one, but actually, Michael, you said you, you mentioned it quickly, but it's not just women that face this problem. I think women are probably the biggest demographic, half the world's population that face this problem, but there are a lot of minority minorities that face this problem. Yeah, I, um, I said it on purpose. I mean, women is easy yeah. <laughs> because it's just so obvious, right? But like identifying all the other minority populations is just so much harder. So that's why I use it as a proxy. I shouldn't do it per se, but you're right. It's not just for ladies, yeah? Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you, I feel like. Uh, I don't know. I've, I've maybe lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I let me- You asked about Findicate. Yeah. 
Yeah, so Findicate, um, our goal is to is to play our small role in in getting more women more women founders access to capital. That's the problem that we're trying to solve. Is not necessarily about the women investor side. It's more about the women startups getting them access. Interesting. Um, to capital, financial inclusion for women led startups, if you will. That means our thesis is basically we invest in women led startups. I think we've tweaked it a little bit that like if a startup is serving women customers, okay, we'll like also entertain that, even if it's not led by a woman. But really our core thesis is that like we should invest in women-led startups. And it's not just like a social, you know, a fluffy social thing. As I said before, women-led startups deliver outsized returns. And therefore it's an arbitrage opportunity that many people are just not taking advantage of. Why do you feel like you have to justify it, particularly to someone like I am? Like there's no reason to justify this. There's no reason to say like it's not just some fluffy idea. Oh, you're when you invest money, you're trying to make money. Yeah, that should that's obvious. It should be obvious. It should be. And Michael, I don't think I have to justify myself to you, but there it's possible that you have listeners who think that they're anytime they hear like women empowerment, women anything, they just like you know just zone out. Yeah. Because they're like, oh, this is some like ESG thing um, <laughs> that you know people do to feel good, but not necessarily deliver outsized returns. Actually, deliver higher returns. And I challenge, I try to challenge that um, yeah. every day because I fundamentally do believe like the numbers show it, that if you invest in diverse it, leadership teams, if you invest in diverse founders, if you invest in ideas that like are like improve the world um, as opposed to only revenue, only returns, then you're actually like, you're going to make more money in the long run. The math just makes sense. If if only 50% of the people have access to the money to build a company, they're going to focus to build a company on serving the people that they know, which is the wrong 50% or the existing yeah. 50%. So if you yeah. give you're money to... the market. Yeah, it's like you're losing half the market. And to be fair, most guys, if they've ever been married, they know once they get married, they're not running the finances in their house, no matter what they think. No, you're <laughs> laughing, but... No, I'm laughing because it's true in my house too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I think most guys are comfy with this. They're just like, you know what? I don't want to think about it. You're better at this than I am, which is something I've heard said a th thousand times. These are guys that make a ton of money, right? So you have guys that go out and make like a million, $2 million a year and go home and go, just can you figure out what to do with this? Yeah. Because I'm not yeah. smart enough to know kind of thing, right? So having that as the basis for this conversation, that half of the market needs to get served. It should be Absolutely. a gigantic financial opportunity, yeah? It absolutely is. And it's funny you say that. I was um, I was remembering a phrase that our, our Indonesian team told me. And they said, because um, we, so I'll share a little bit about Wagely. Our customer base is like actually pretty 50-50 men and women, mm -hmm. but we see more men using the product and we are actively putting in efforts to engage more women users because we recognize them as a very important customer demographic. But it was funny, I was getting some like feedback from our Indo team and they said that there's like an Indonesian phrase that when people, when men get their paycheck, um, they immediately give it to their wives uh, because they don't trust themselves to actually spend it appropriately. Yeah. Um, it's like some phrase, I can't remember what it is in Basa, but um, it's, it's, it is a, it's a cultural norm. And the fact that we haven't as like an industry picked up on that and are actually serving those customers in a meaningful way is just like mind blowing. I will, I will share a story with you as well. Because I think it's not just cultural, but I think it's also cross-generational. It's not just cross-cultural, but cross-generational. My grandfather stuttered. And in the 19-teens, that was just unacceptable. They thought he was retarded. He demonstrably was not. 
and he built a really good business, but he couldn't do his own math because he never, never passed yeah. second grade. Like they literally like chased him out of school. My grandmother was a mathematical genius. So all the money that my grandfather made, and he made a lot of it, he just gave to grandma and she figured out what to do with it. And this is what I mean when I say like, I don't think it's just one generation. I think it's cross-generational. So same thing. How do you get female guests on your podcast? And is it harder for you to get female guests than it is to get male guests? Funny you ask that. For female guests, I just I just reach out to a lot of people. I think at this point, I know a lot of folks in the industry. My, so my podcast focuses on fintech founders. And so at this point, having the angel syndicate being like in the startup ecosystem, like I do actually know personally a lot of like the female founders that I want to talk to. Um, but it's funny because the women founders, I have to reach out to them. And then I have to give them a lot of information about what the podcast is going to be like. Um, what's the agenda going to be? What are the questions I'm going to ask? What's, you know, what are like, what's it going to feel like? And can they edit things out at the end? They, they want to have that uh, more information to actually say yes. Whereas I have, I've had many male founders reach out to me directly and say, Hey, can I be on your podcast? <laughs> and sometimes they're, you know, sometimes people you don't, I mean, it's not always people you want on the podcast. I mean, um, not, not everyone's an appropriate guest. Let's just say that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of way of saying it, Michael. Um, and so I'm good at I this. Think, <laughs> I know. Um, as a fan of as oh, of, stop of podcast, it. Yes. No, but and I wonder. I wonder if you face anything similar because this also mirrors what I see in the investing space. We have a lot of women as part of our syndicate. Um, we also inc include men. Like men are also invited to join as as allies um, and invest because again, the problem we're solving is getting the cash flow, getting the cash flow to to women led startups. Right, but women tend to have a much higher risk awareness, not risk aversion, um, but much, much higher risk awareness. They want to have a lot more information before they make a decision, being on a podcast decision, be it a financial decision, whatever. Women want to have more information. And so it means that from a syndicate perspective to actually get to a certain check size and actually get a certain level of investment, it's a lot more due diligence. It's a lot more education. Um, and I think I feel very confident about the decisions we've made but I think as far as getting people to actually commit again to being on the podcast or raising capital, it's much easier to get a man to say yes. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I don't at all. I find it really hard to get female guests on the show and I'm constantly trying to do it because I want to have that. Again, we talked about the numbers. It's 50% of the population. So I want to have the that 50% of the insight, the ideas, the thought processes, all that kind of stuff, right? Because I do think it's different. And I reach out all the time and I do get this thing that you're talking about. It's like, why would I be on the show? What would I want to do? What are we going to talk about? What, what's the benefit to me kind of thing? Whereas if I ask a guy, he'll just be like, I'm ready next Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. Same experience then. But I applaud you, Michael, for wanting to have more, more women on the show. I think they're, they're the voices that we're missing, I think, particularly in this tech ecosystem. Yeah, it's, I agree. Every tech happy hour I go to, it's just a boys club. Yeah. And it's, it's annoying. It, yeah. And I think it, it's also, it's hard for, I think about like younger women who are like just out of college and are thinking about, should I start something? They don't have a lot of role models to look up to. And I think that also needs to change. That's like a part of the ecosystem that I don't know how we really solve. Like it's, it's kind of like a pipeline issue. 
Um, but to get more women in leadership positions as like successful founders to have like, you know, like little girls, someone to look up to, I think is also yeah. hugely important. One of the reasons I love being at Grab is because one of the co-founders, like I, I could see, I could, you know, yeah, you see myself. See her. She's right over her. there. She's right over there. Yeah. She also, she went to Harvard. Like she's, you know, she's living here. She's focused on financial inclusion and maybe a different, so slightly different way. Right, but she's but, you 10 years later in a way. Right. And it's all yeah. this. And I, I think having like more role models like Ling uh, or Hui Ling is, is actually really, really important for the ecosystem. So here's something I struggle with. If I didn't know you, right? And remember, I reached out to you blindly, right? So I didn't know you actually. But if it was in person, let's say we were at one of those meetings that you talked about. It's a startup meeting. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a podcast. I heard you having some interesting conversation. And I'm like, I have to get this lady on my show. Mm-hmm. But if I walk over to you there, you're just going to think, who is this weird dude talking to me? <laughs> no. no, no, but that's what it feels like, right? And you're right. I, I want to do this so much because I do it when I sit in a co-working space like two days a week, right? Sometimes. And I can walk over to any guy that's doing there and go, what are you working on? Right. And yeah. I'm normally old enough to be their dad, which is fine with me. But I'm just, what are you working on? I'm working on this. I'm a photographer. I'm a content creator, whatever it is. I can't go do the same thing to you. Yeah. Can, can I? I guess not. No. But no, because you'd just be like, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> so here's, here's the thing. And the, that I see. It's it's again about meeting your customers, again, air quotes, meeting your customers where they are. Yeah. And I see this in, in our product development. We do see that women don't want to use our product because if we've got a bunch of male agents out there trying to talk to them, they're like, don't talk to me. Yeah. Especially in more conservative societies where men and women talking outside of a outside of a marriage is like very much frowned upon. It's taboo, actually. And but so yes. it's taboo, right. And so we've had to change our model and say, hey, we're going to actually employ more women agents to actually go out and talk to our women customers because they're going to be so much more comfortable. Word of mouth is so much more powerful when it comes to women. Yeah. And there are actually, they're actually organizations that do focus on this. Um, I was at a conference in May um, put on by Women's World Banking, and they've got a whole like methodology around not human-centered design, women-centered design. Um, and it's how you reach your women customers in a way that's like approachable and again, meets them on their level. And I think maybe you can apply that as you, uh, as you try to get more uh, guests on your podcast, Michael. I just wrote it down, women-centered design. I'm gonna have to think about it. I feel like we could go on and on. I'm gonna let you go. This has been really amazing. You have to come back on the show and just do this more often. Anytime you wanna talk about something, just call me up and let me know <laughs> and we'll, we'll publish it. I'm not kidding. I'm Rita Fier, a co-founder of Findicate. And head of strategy and business expansion at Wagely. Maybe next time we get you on just to talk about Wagely itself. That would be great. But I really appreciate you doing this today. Absolutely, Michael. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun.